welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. It's good to uh, be together this morning. Uh, great to uh, be able to meet again in person. I really get uh, get tired of uh, recording messages <laughs> to people I can't see. So it's great to have a have a, a live audience to, uh, to to be to speak to, but more than that, just to be able to fellowship together, sing together uh, in the Lord. I want to open your Bibles this morning to uh, Hebrews chapter ten. We also have it on the screen here for you. The lighting is such it's a little hard to see, uh, especially if your eyes aren't great uh, to read your Bible. So um, we have that for you as well. I'm glad you're able to be here this morning. Trust the Lord will encourage you and uh, uh, just um, instruct you and um, be a blessing to you this week as you hear the word this morning in various ways. We want to read together as we open our, our time of worship in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great uh, priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see uh, the day dawning near. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do uh, love you this morning and rejoice in who you are and what you've accomplished for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can draw near, as we're admonished in this passage, to draw near unto your throne uh, and to bring our, our prayers unto you. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have cleansed us. Those of us who've put our faith and trust in you uh, have been forgiven, and we've been sanctified and set apart uh, in Christ so that we can come into your presence. We can come with that confidence that we belong to you and that our prayers are heard and accepted through Christ. We thank you, Lord, that although you are high and lifted up and in many ways far, far away, you're also very near and you've put your very spirit within us to be with us to teach us, to guide us, to help us, to stand by us. And Father, we thank you for that. We pray today that our hearts would be open to your word, that you would encourage us and help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. So good to be with you guys this morning. I'm excited to worship the Lord together. Let's, um, let's stand together and sing of God's grace this morning, please. Thou fount of every blessing. 
sing to my heart to sing thy praise streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above praise the mountain fixed upon it mount of thy redeeming love here i raise my ebenezer hither by thy help i come and i hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home jesus on me when a stranger wandering from the fold of god he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood oh to grace how great a debtor daily i'm constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prone to wander lord i feel it prone to leave the god i love here's my heart oh take and seal it seal it for thy courts above Kom ons buig ons hoofd in gebed voor die Heere en dan bid ons saam. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are the Holy God. Yes, you revealed yourself to us through the Bible and we come and bow before your greatness and acknowledge that you are our God. Vader, ons kom as geloviges wat hier vanochtend by mekaar is. En ons kom doen dit vooral op die belofte van die Heere Jezus toe hy gesê het, waar twee of drie in my naam vergader, daar is ek in hulle midde. En Heere, wanneer ons besef dat ons in die teenwoordigheid kom, dan buig ons in diepe aanbidding. Ons sonde belei ons. Ons kom na u toe en met dankbare harte erken ons dat u ons gebede verhoor en dat u ons God verewig is. Daarom kom neem ons vrijmoedigheid vanmorgen om te bid, and we thank you Lord for you answering our prayers, and that you supply in our every need. We come and pray for our family. Lord, we need to grow in numbers, and we ask humbly that you would send the saved to join our group, so that we could worship you and be a stronghold and a testimony of your grace. We pray for our pastor, Pastor Bryant. We ask that you would give him wisdom, especially as he preached to us and teaches us from the Bible, so that we could grow in our faith and be strong in you. We need you in every part of our lives. We also pray for Sharon, that you would help her to Stand by Bryant and be a strength to him also. We also pray for the many requests that's on our prayer list. And we pray, Lord, that you would help Irene when she uh, struggles with reading. And, and we 
pray that you would help her and to achieve this again. We pray for every other person that's named on our list, and we can only remember a few names if we pray for uh, Tony and Mariette, for Mariki, for Kitty and, and Harman, for Renee and all those that have been mentioned that are in need of help. We ask, Lord, that you would please grant us our, our prayers. Ja, Heere, ons vraag dat u ons gebede sal hoor en verhoor en dat u naam in ons groot gemaakt sal word. En wanneer ons vanmorgen ons offergave na u bring, vraag ons Heere dat u dit sal seen en gebruik tot die eer. Dankie vir elkeen wat gee en elkeen wat daarmee werk, dat u hulle ook wijsheid sal gee wanneer hulle daarmee werk. Ons vraag hierdie dinge Heere nie omdat ons iets verdien, maar in nederigheid sê ons dit in Jesus' naam. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue in the series from the, the letter to the Ephesians. And I hope that uh, it's been encouragement to you as it has to me working through uh, chapter 1 as we get, enter into chapter 2 this morning. We continue praying for each other. A few of us... Uh, not here this morning. I'm still uh, not uh, able to not able to be to be out and about. I'm still concerns about the, the virus that's very much still active, and uh, so we're praying for each other. And uh, uh, thank you that uh, you're able to be here this morning. In Ephesians chapter two, and we're going to be looking at that. The title of the message this morning: Why many do not believe. Have you ever wondered about that? Why people do not come to faith in Christ, believing the gospel. Uh, why so many seem to have no interest in the things of God, or hearing about Christ, or knowing the Bible. You may have some uh, family like that, who uh, just just uninterested. Some may even be hostile to um, the gospel. Uh, maybe you have some friends like that that uh, you've tried to uh, talk to about your faith, but uh, there's just um, there's just no interest. I mean, some people have had bad experiences. Uh, others have um, maybe haven't been brought up in church. They haven't been taught to, uh, to love the things of God. And while these things contribute to the problem, it's uh, not really the problem. The real problem is much bigger, much bigger than that. As we've seen in chapter 1, God has blessed us as believers with every spiritual blessing. And we've been looking at uh, uh, this, this opening um, chapters of the letter from God's viewpoint, as if we're lifted up to a high mountain and being able to see the valley below. And, and God has given us his, um, his view uh, through the apostle of these matters of our salvation, and we've seen all that God has planned and done for us. Uh, look back in chapter 1 at verse 7, there where he says, In him, speaking of in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And as we've seen through chapter 1, there's this uh, repetition of uh, thought that it's all to the praise of the glory of God and to His grace. 
And as we uh, think about these things, it's, um, it's hard for us to imagine that people would reject God, reject his word, reject uh, the, the gift uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and we often wonder why is that so? Well, in these beginning of chapter two, two, Paul gives us the answer as to why there's so many that do not believe. And he says it's because of their spiritual state, or we could say their spiritual condition of man. And by the way, when the, when the scriptures often use the word man, he's talking about mankind, uh, humanity in general, both men and women, boys and girls. It's humanity. And in some of your translations, they'll translate that people just to help make the point. But the spiritual condition of man is the problem. His, his condition is such that he desires just the opposite of what God has to offer. Uh, Paul says that all are by nature sons of disobedience and children of wrath. We saw at the end of uh, chapter 1, Paul's prayer. And uh, in verse 19 and 20, he, he desires for us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We looked at those uh, in those verses and thought about this power of God that works in us. And Paul will continue from that prayer into chapter 2 to explain why God's mighty power is necessary for us to believe. He says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, that's not a, that's not a very uh, uh, nice topic to be thinking about. It's, it's very negative. And in our, in our day and time, people uh, only want to hear about positive things. And especially it's come into religious circles now where it's almost part of the religion that you're only to be positive. You turn on the TV and you can hear Joel Osteen talk about this positive thinking and, and, and just being happy and never saying anything negative. And although that may sound um, nice, may sound good, may make people feel good, in, re in reality, it's, it's not loving. Uh, I watched a, a, a movie about uh, this boy who had to bring surgery and he recovered but he was having trouble uh, he was being having being nauseous and having mood swings and uh, but but no one wanted to acknowledge it his family and people that were close to him were just trying to say well he's you know he's he's doing so wonderfully let's don't let's don't discourage him with the problems that he's having or they didn't want to go back to have more tests done or didn't want to go back to the doctor and even, even though the doctor had warned them that this could be serious, uh, they didn't want to talk about the negative things. And, and that's the way it is many times today. Uh, people are, think that if you just ignore the negative, then, then it's, it's, it's okay. Let's don't dwell on the, the negative. And yet, when we fail to tell people, the truth about their spiritual condition. We're not being loving to them. We're actually being very uh, wrong and sinful and cruel towards them because we're not 
telling them their real need. And uh, that's what Paul does for us in these opening verses. He shows the real condition of man, and he says that he is dead and trespasses and sins. And obviously, he's talking about being dead spiritually. Let's read together the words for you here uh, from verses 1 to 3, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's think about what Paul is, is teaching us this morning. Was he, what is he revealing to us about man? Uh, some translations supply the word there in verse 1, he made us alive, so they would read, and, uh, and you, uh, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, something like that. And so that phrase there, he made alive, is actually supplied, and if you, if you have a translation that supplies that, you'll notice that it's in italic. In other words, to show you that, that the translators added that, and what they've actually picked that up from verse 5, where Paul comes back to that and says that, he, that we have been made alive um, and uh, that we were uh, dead and trespasses and in our sins. And so uh, the, uh, the Net Bible translation has this note about that. It says, Chapter 2 starts off with a participle, you were dead, that is left dangling. In other words, it's, it's not a complete sentence. And he goes on to say the syntax in Greek for the first three uh, consecutive, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Greek syntax in Greek for verses 1 to 3 constitutes one incomplete sentence, though it seems to have been done intentionally. The dangling participle leaves the reader in suspense while they wait for the solution to their spiritual dilemma. And so it does seem that that's what Paul is intentionally doing with this dangling or incomplete sentence on purpose to emphasize the answer to our problem, the problem of man. And that answer begins in verse 4 where he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so Paul starts right up front in this chapter 2 with man's condition or his spiritual state. He is dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, being dead is just the opposite of, of being spiritually alive. A spiritually dead person is separated from the life that is in God. He's, he has no fellowship with God. And as we see from this passage, he, he doesn't miss it. He doesn't have a desire for the things of God and to have a, a relationship with God and a relationship with God's Word. He doesn't have that hunger. It's one, of the, one of the characteristics of a genuine believer is that God puts within him a desire that he didn't have before. A desire for the Word, a desire for fellowship with God, and fellowship with other believers who love the Lord. 
There's a few of the translations of this opening phrase that give a wrong ideal about what Paul is saying. Uh, they say it's, that it's because of their sin that they were dead. Uh, notice that the New Living Translation, verse 1 says, Once we were dead because of your, uh, sorry, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Uh, the the Neva Vertaling says, Yella was du et as kofokfan yella urtreninga and sondas. But that's not what Paul is saying that we were dead because of or through our sins. It's actually the, the other way around. Men sin because they are sinners, because they are spiritually dead. It flows from within who they are. One author writes, they are not dead because of sinful acts they, that they committed, but because of their sinful nature. And so we are dead in trespasses and sins, not because of. Um, in other words, we don't start out in life when we're born like a, like a blank page and the things that we do are right on that page and, and we become sinners. Or, or, we, or at some stage we... We sin so much that we become dead. What the Scriptures teach us is that we start out that way. And so the problem is there from the beginning, from birth. Jesus speaks to this reality of of the nature of man. In uh, Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 34, he says, For out of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. In other words, the things that you see in a person's life, the evil, the sin, all of those manifestations, they're coming from within, from what's in the person, what's in the heart. Uh, This this, uh, condition, by the way, you don't need to be a theologian to know that. All you have to to do is have children. (laughs) And you know that it's there. It's not taught to them. Disobedience and rebellion and all those wrong attitudes. It's not taught. It's not, it can be learned in a sense, I suppose, but it's just there. It's waiting to, to be exposed and expressed in different ways. And as they get older, they are just have more power to do so. And so we see this problem. The problem is from within and it begins at birth. And all men after Adam, Scripture says, are, are sinners or from birth centers. The end of verse 3 says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, this, this condition is often referred to as total depravity or total inability in theological terms. But, and it's because of, apart from God's intervention, if God doesn't do something, if God doesn't intervene, He will not and indeed cannot respond to God. And the reason is because His mind is set on the flesh. Uh, There's nothing there from within man that causes him to want to um, believe God, trust God. He says uh, in verse 3 that we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And Paul speaks to that in Romans, um, this issue of the the flesh and the mind. And we'll come back to that when we get to to verse uh, 3. But he says in Romans 8, verse 7 and 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. By the way, that phrase there, in the flesh, is, is used to refer to unbelievers as opposed to those who are in Christ. Uh, many, many verses speak to this hopeless condition of man, but uh, Paul sums many of, of the Old Testament uh, references up in uh, Romans chapter 3, and he, and he quotes many of those uh, Old Testament references to the, the condition of man. Notice there in, in Romans 3, from verse 9, he says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, and no one does good, no, uh, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asp is under uh, their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so this, this, this description of man in his lost condition. He's lost without Christ. He's dead and trespasses and sins. Now, unless you misunderstand, this doesn't mean that uh, men or all men are as as wicked as they could be. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, they they were without uh, a conscience or a sense of right and wrong, and and many can do good things. And from an outward uh, human perspective, they can be very good people and do many good deeds. And from a human standard, we would say that, um, that that's a good person. But even the best that man does, his own righteousness is said by God to be as filthy rags. In other words, they are not accepted before God. And the reason is that even, even our good, even our best is tainted by our sin. And therefore, it cannot satisfy holy God. Holy and righteous God. Come back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And those words, trespasses and sins, dead and trespasses and sins. Well, although these words have different nuances of meaning, uh, trespasses speak to missteps and sins to missing the mark. They both are really describing the outward manifestations or acts uh, that come from this inward this inner condition of man's sinful heart. Uh, years ago, I met an Afrikaans lady who told me very bluntly, well, I'm not a sinner. <laughs> I can never forget that uh, almost shocking statement. Uh, I'm not a sinner. It's the same thing that the Jewish leaders said to Christ. And they thought that it was only the Gentiles who were sinners, only those very bad people. Those people who are, you know, openly in sin and worshiping false gods, they are the sinners. We are, we are the people of God. We're holy. And yet Jesus tells them, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so what he's saying is as long as, that, as you think that you can do something to be accepted by God, there's no hope for you. 
There's no reconcil- reconciliation with God. So, so long as you think that, that somehow that, that you can just do enough things or you can be good enough, that God will, will accept that. We have to come to a point where we agree with God that we are sinners, that we're hopeless, hopelessly lost for God. And uh, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. See, to appreciate as believers on this end of salvation, to really appreciate what God has done for us, we need to, we need to un- understand what we came from, and what God saved us out of. In verses 2 and 3, Paul will continue to describe man's condition in sin. And as, we, as I pointed out before, concerning man's great need for God's powerful working in us, we have a, a threefold enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these three are working powerfully to keep man in his state of sin, in his condition. Well, this first thing that Paul points out about this um, this condition of man who's being dead in in sin uh, is that uh, men without Christ walk according to the world. He says in, in verse uh, one, first part of verse two, and you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And so men without Christ, they walk or they live. And as you know that this figure of speech for walking is, is describing our life, the way we conduct ourselves, our, our goings and comings, how we live. It's, it's described as a walk. And men without Christ, they walk according to, or ESV says, following the course of this world. And as Paul uses the, this word world, he's talking about the order or the system of this world that we live in. It's the, it's the values, the, the way of thinking, this whole world system that is in opposition to God. And if you're not sure that that's really true, just take a stand for God. Take a stand for the, the word of God and the the values and the standards of the Word of God, and you realize that the word, the world is also against you. <laughs> they do not want to hear the truth of God. They do not accept God's values. They do not, un, do not accept His standards. And, and so they're in opposition to, to God. He quickly moves to the second uh, reality, and that is that men without Christ walk according to the rule of Satan. He tells us the reason that the world is in opposition to God, and it's because it is under the rule of Satan. Notice the end of verse 2. He says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now this, this word prince is, is the word ruler. It's often, most often translated that way, a ruler. And it, it refers to Satan. And his, he is the prince of this world, the ruler in this world that we live in. And, and the word power or, or authority, which is often translated the power of the air and the spirit or the spirit beings, uh, these are most likely references to Satan's demonic host, 
he is the ruler and he has these angels, these fallen angels that serve him and, and, and accomplish his desires. Many of these same words are used to, to describe Satan and his angels as Paul warns believers in the end of this uh, letter, chapter 6. He says for, in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil, uh, of evil in the heavenly places. And so this is the Satan's realm, his, his rule that he is allowed. Because Satan's rule is limited. He's not like God. He is powerful. Um, he's, but he's not finite. Like, he, he is finite. He's not infinite like God is. He's, he's limited. And he's subject to what God allows. As you think about this world system, this, the philosophy of the world, the wisdom of the world, the direction that this world is pursuing, it's under his rule. Man thinks that he's free. You talk hear a lot about freedom and my rights, man's rights, my rights for this and my rights for that. And men think that they are free to do as they please. But in reality, they live in bondage to sin and are under the power of the evil one and the influence of these demonic forces. Notice how Paul describes Satan's working in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, the God of this world, Satan, is busy trying to hold people in this condition of being blinded to the truth, being dead to the reality of what Christ has accomplished. And uh, Paul is saying that if people have like a veil over their face to the gospel, they, they can't see it's hidden from them. And this work that he speaks of, and um, if you go back to our text in, uh, in Ephesians 2 and verse 2, he says, the spirit that is now at work, it's inner, inner ghetto, it's a, word that used, was used earlier to talk about God's working, Spirit's working in us. But this Spirit, or this work, is done in the sons of disobedience. This is the powerful working of Satan, his demons, and in contrast to God's powerful working in us. Aren't you glad that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world? What he's saying there is that the Holy Spirit is greater. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us is greater than Satan and his working and his demons working. You notice also the phrase disobedience at the end of verse 2, the sons of disobedience. This is saying that a person is characterized by disobedience. He's a son of disobedience. Like a, like a son bears the traits or the likeness of his his parents, so unbelievers resemble and have the traits of their father, Satan, and his rebellion against God. You see, this word disobedience means more than just not to do what God wants us to do. It, it implies an obstinate rejection to God's will. 
a refusal to believe. It's literally in a condition of being unpersuadable. At the, the root of this word is to persuade. And uh, their disobedience is displayed in a, in a rebellion against God's will. They're, they're unpersuadable concerning the truth of God to be bent to His will. And Colossians 1 verse 13 and 14, reminds us of what we've been delivered from as believers. He says, Colossians 1, 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, Paul moves to this third point. I want you to see that he says that men without Christ live according to the passions of the flesh. And Paul wants to make sure that uh, the Gentiles don't think it's just them who are in this condition. And he he wants to make sure the Jews don't think that uh, uh, they're not included in what Paul is saying about this condition. He says um, they are also in this sinful condition as sons of disobedience. Remember that uh, the Jews told, Jewish leaders told Jesus, we have Abraham as our father. (laughs) And uh, Jesus reminded them, that's not the case. Not really, not spiritually. And uh, Ephesians 2 and verse 3 says, among whom we all, you you notice he started out there in verse 2, you as you, you were. And and as he did earlier in chapter 1, he's, he's, Directing that you to, towards these Gentiles, believe, these believers that had come to faith, who didn't have the background that the Jews did. And he says, you were dead. And then he, then he comes to verse 3, among whom we all once lived. And he's wanting to include and make sure that they understand that we're all in this condition. We're all before faith in Christ, sons of disobedience. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so Paul includes himself in this condition before his conversion. Even Paul, you think about Paul from a human perspective, he would be considered a, a holy man. And in that Jewish context, he was blameless in his keeping of the law. And people looked to Paul, they they wouldn't be able to point a finger and say, well, Paul, you're really letting down on this point. And Paul, you should do that and you shouldn't do that. No, Paul Paul was an exemplary Jew in keeping of the law and a, a teacher of the law. But Paul includes himself in this fallen condition before his salvation. And uh, he would... He would say uh, that all of that he counted as nothing, as worthless, that he might gain Christ. And so it's not how good a person can be or how moral they can try to live. We're all in this condition without Christ. Every believer, just like everyone else, lived in the passion the passions of the flesh. This word passion speaks of strong desires. It's not necessarily negative, sometimes used in a positive way, but in this context, it's very clear. It's living out according to the sinful art, sinful desires of the flesh. Mankind by nature lives according to the lust and the passions of 
of the flesh. And it's important for us this morning to take the time to understand this word flesh because it's not always used in the same way. As you're reading your Bibles, you have to really look at the context of how it's used to determine how the, the, the author is using this word flesh. And all through the Scripture, you'll see this. In the Old Testament, you would see flesh, or the, the equivalent of this Greek word being used as part of the body, or by extension, the whole body. And so the physical body, obviously, is, is used this way. Uh, it's also used to refer to the body to, to speak to the person, not just to his body, but to him to people in general. It's, it's used of mankind in general in some, some cases, talking about flesh. And that these uses carry over into the New Testament as well. We see this variation of ways in which the word uh, flesh is used. But as you come into the New Testament, and Paul in particular will use this word to refer to fallen humanity or the sinfulness of, of our humanity, the the condition of the heart, and he uses flesh in that way. He's not, he's not talking about just the body. Uh, he's talking about the whole being of the person. Every part of the person is in sin, and it's fallen. Uh, in, in Romans 8, we, we read a verse there before, uh, but Paul, in that chapter in particular, he, he describes those that are unbelievers as being in the flesh, and he contrasts them with believers that are in the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. In other words, the Spirit of God dwells in them, in believers. And the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in unbelievers, and therefore they are in the flesh. And so you have this contrast, the one over against the other. Notice in Romans 8, verse 5 and 6, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And see how he set those two over against each other. Come on down to verse 8. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so it's clear that Paul's using this word flesh not just to refer to the body, part of the body, or even to the, the, the sinfulness of the, the body, the desires of the, of, um, of the body, the natural desires of the body, whether good or bad. He, he's talking more than just that. He's talking about the very nature of man, the flesh. Paul does a similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, you'll remember this passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, in verse 14 through 16, it really goes on into chapter 3, where he refers to the unsaved man as a natural man. And he contrasts that with the spiritual man. And again, this use of man is humanity, mankind, people. And the reason the spiritual man is, is so described is because he has the Spirit of God. And the natural man does not have the Spirit of God. Let me read for you. Verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person or man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the natural man is the man, as Paul in other places described as in the flesh. He is without God. He's without the Spirit of God. 
It doesn't mean that he can't learn and understand. There's many theologians who are not saved. Many theologians that know a lot about the Bible and study the Bible as their, as their career, and yet have not come to faith in Christ for salvation. And so it's not about how much you know or what even you're able to know. It's about having the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and not only teaches us the meaning, but how that Word applies to our heart and our life and how that uh, we are to respond to it. And so the natural man does not respond to the Word of God. Even if you sat down with him and taught him so that he could say, yeah, I, I understand that and I, I, I can believe that. But without the Spirit of God at work, in that person's heart, he will not respond to that truth. It is not spiritually discerned, you see. In Ephesians, go back there to uh, verse 3, he says, that we all lived in the passions of our flesh. And so when Paul says that, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, he's referring to the whole man, the whole man that's given to the pursuits of his own selfish cravings and desires. He walks according to this world system. He's under the, the rule of Satan, and he's living according to the passions of his own sinful nature. Such is the nature of man, and he's spiritually dead condition. He's characterized as a son of disobedience. He rejects the will of God. He, he follows his own will. He's literally in a condition of being unpersuadable. And that's why many people do not respond to the gospel. That's why many people will not want to listen to you. And this is why we are dependent upon the sovereign working of God in people's hearts. So they will come to faith. That's why we should pray for them. We are to take the word of God to them. We are to witness to them. We are to live before them a life that witnesses to the transforming grace of God, but we must depend upon the Holy Spirit of God to draw them unto himself. He alone has the power to convict them of their sinful condition and open their eyes that they might see the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope and accept him as their Savior. And those of us here this morning that have this confidence, we know the Lord is our Savior. We should be filled with this sense of uh, thankfulness to the Lord and gratitude for the Lord for opening our heart and our mind. It's not because that we were better people. It's not because that we just had a stronger faith than someone else did. It's because of God's grace. And that's what Paul wants us to see as we move into this second part that, he, that he's talking about here from chapter 2. He's going to emphasize the working of God's grace. As he did in chapter 1 to the the glory of God, to the praise of the glory of God, to the praise of the, the glorious grace of God. And so our hearts should be filled with praise to Him. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning as Your children to know You. We thank You, Father, for what You saved us from, from our hopeless condition of sin, lostness, from our being spiritually dead, You've made us alive so that we can know you. And one day you're going to raise us up to be with you in heaven, to be eternally in fellowship with you. And Lord, we, we rejoice in all these things that you're 
you revealed to us in your word. Lord, may it impact us today to live for you. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength small, child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and died my soul to say my lips shall still repeat Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow just wanted to uh... Close reminding you that uh, Daniel and Kelsey are families coming uh, next week, Lord willing. Thank you for your prayers for them and their three children. And we're looking forward to having them here. Uh, Daniel's um, being sent out from his home church there in North Carolina to uh, come as a, a missionary church planter. And he's coming at the invitation of the um, uh, Inspired George team of church planters here in George. And so he's coming under that under that body, and he's uh, going to be working with me, with with this church, at least for the foreseeable future. And um, we really haven't given him a complete job description or anything, but uh, he's going to be doing more than just getting my coffee and things like that. <laughs> uh, but uh, he, uh, my hope is that um, he and his family will be able to... Um, to impact other families. Our church uh, desperately needs um, more young families. And it's hard for us old folks to, uh, to make those contacts, to, uh, to influence younger families. And so um, it's much easier when, you're, when you have children in school or in creche or in, um, in those environments to meet people. And uh, so much of our contacts come through relationships that we build and that we make contact. And so we, we shouldn't just say, okay, well, it's somebody else's job, but all of us need to be involved in that process of making contacts and trying and praying uh, to, um, to reach people all around us. But uh, my, my uh, hope is for them in particular, time he will be coming and devoting time to this um, church planning effort uh, more 
than if he was in a you know, full-time job here. And so uh, that is my, my hope and prayer for him. He'll be, he'll be part of the church planning um, pastoral team, part of this church ministry. But, um, but I, I hope to use him in that way, outreach, or uh, obviously the discipleships and evangelistic contacts and efforts. Um, maybe not right away, but eventually he'll be preaching some and carrying out those types of, of ministries. But I, I want them to have time to, uh, to become part of the church. You get to know them. They get to know you. Um, and uh, so just trusting the Lord for that. If you're praying, praying for them, uh, Daniel uh, does have um, quite a bit of training. Uh, his master's degree in, uh, he has the undergraduate in Bible and, the, and a master's degree in uh, Christian counseling. And that's not psychological training or um, training in, um, from a world viewpoint, but a, a biblical Christian conservative biblical counseling and so that's quite a different thing so uh do pray for them i, I believe uh, god uh, can greatly use them here in george and so we're really looking forward to that and there'll be many challenges for them daniel's also going to be continuing his uh, training he wants to get a uh, what's called an mdiv so it's a uh, degree in the- theology uh, theological training is beyond the masters, and so um, pray for him for that that as well. And uh, so, um, so we're thankful for that, and good to be together. So, Lord bless you.